From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Today, we're now just days away from the first stages of a historic trial that will play out in Fulton County Court and will be closely watched far beyond Georgia. The indictment alleges that rather than abide by Georgia's legal process for election challenges, the defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. Jury selection in the trial of two of Donald Trump's co-defendants, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough, is set to begin on Friday. The AJC's Tamar Hallerman is with us to set the stage for the upcoming trial. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. Congressman Jim Jordan may not have the votes yet to become the next Speaker of the House, but hear how he'll be forcing the issue anyway later today. Later, Herschel Walker is sitting on a mountain of campaign cash long after losing his Senate race to Raphael Warnock. Is he contemplating another run for office? And how do Georgia Republicans feel about that? We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. And guys, we have a special guest today. It's not just Tamar Halloran, the AJC's super senior reporter covering the Donald Trump trial, but it's also my daughter, Brooke Bluestein, who is on Take Your Daughter to Work Day unofficially because she's off from school today. She is also, to listeners of the show, you already know her as a podcast host herself. She recently interviewed the great author, Carl Hyacinth. Brooke, you want to say hi? She says hi. <laughs> Brooke, how did you like uh, interviewing Carl Hyacinth? I, I mentioned I used to interview him when he had a new book come out. He was He's really fun to interview, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tia, Brooke is very emotive today. <laughs> yes, a, a woman of few words, but very astute words. Hey, Brooke, how you doing this morning? I'm doing good. Did you have fun hanging out? And she is doing crystal art in the studio. Uh, for those of you like me who didn't know what crystal art is, it's very like very fine motor skills involved beading, I guess. is how do you print how do you Sticking do? gems on sticky paper. Yeah, sticking gems on sticky paper. So, Brooke, thank you so much for joining us and for behaving as we tape our podcast today. Well, let's get right into it. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. It's been almost a year and a half since Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis began her investigation into whether Donald Trump and a number of his allies in Georgia and in Washington acted illegally when they worked to overturn the results of Georgia's presidential election. She eventually charged former President Trump and 18 others with engaging in a criminal conspiracy to change the outcome of Georgia's 2020 vote. 
The trial for two of those defendants, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough, will get underway with jury selection later this week. The AJC's Tamar Hallerman has been following every step of this investigation, and she joins us now. Tamar, thanks so much for joining us, and tell us, why are we seeing this early trial for these two defendants? Well, thanks for having me on Politically Georgia. Um, We are beginning trial so quickly after these indictments were handed up in August because two of the 19 defendants, Sidney Powell and Ken Chesbrough, demanded a speedy trial, which is their right under Georgia law. Um, So because of that, the court had to get moving very quickly um, to get everything in a row for that. So jury selection is going to begin on Friday where 450 Fulton County residents will begin filling out questionnaires on Monday. The uh, interview process known as voir dire um, jury selection will officially begin. And that is when attorneys for the DA's office for Chesbro, for Powell, each get an hour to sit with jurors in groups of 14, where they will question them about various aspects of their questionnaire to, to see if they are open to giving a fair trial to their clients. Tamar, um, do we know why Powell and Chesborough decided they wanted to invoke their right to a speedy trial? And do we know whether that put uh, the uh, district attorney's team a little bit on the defensive and having to be prepared so quickly to uh, begin trying these defendants? Well, if you ask the DA's office, they say that they were prepared for that possibility. And of course it is in, in any criminal case. So a lot of folks were criticizing DA Willis for for seemingly taking her time in bringing these indictments. And so you could say that, that this was probably contributing to that because they wanted to be ready for a scenario like this. And look, we don't have the greatest understanding about why Chesbro and Powell wanted to do this, but it is a very interesting gambit. And it really does kind of force the DA's hand in all of this. It kind of dares them to be ready or to to perhaps cut a plea deal um, you know, with them if if they're not. You're you're kind of betting that the DA won't be ready in all of this. Um, Ken Chesbro's folks say look, we want this over with. Our client is not a wealthy man. He still is a working attorney. He doesn't want these charges hanging over his head. As for Powell's folks, they're very eager to tell their side of the story. They say the DA's office has gotten a lot of it wrong in the indictment, and they're very eager to present their sides of, of the facts and all of this. Tamar, you know, we know the Fulton County DA's Bonnie Willis, her initial strategy was to try everyone together under one in one trial at one time. Um, you know, there was that that motion to sever a few weeks ago uh, that these defendants ended up winning. So there's now going to be kind of parceled out trials going on. But still, the same core questions keeps on coming up. How can Fonnie Willis and, and how come the prosecutors actually find an impartial jury? We know how hard it is in the YSL trial, which could end up being the longest trial in Fulton County history when it's all said and done. But how do they find an impartial jury? Someone who doesn't have a preconceived notion about about Donald Trump and his allies' guilt or innocence. It's going to be very difficult, but they've got an extremely pressing deadline in all of this. They have until November 3rd to seat this this jury, so 12 jurors and six alternates that the judge wants. So um, not as big as maybe seating a grand jury, but at the same time, you're right. It will be a challenge finding folks who haven't heard of these folks or haven't followed this at least somewhat in the news. At the same time, the load is going to be a little bit lighter because overall, uh, most people don't know who Ken Chesbrough is. Many people don't know who Sidney Powell is, but maybe maybe more do. But still, we're not talking about the same level of notoriety mm-hmm. as somebody like Donald Trump or Rudy Giuliani. Perhaps that'll play into um, 
folks favor in, in terms of, of timing, but it certainly is going to be a tall order. I have a really basic question based on what you just said. Why do they have a deadline of early November to get the jury seated? And what happens if they don't? Well, that has to do with Georgia's speedy trial rules, and pardon my dog in the, in the back there. But basically, they have until the end of this term, which ends the, the first week of November. So that's why the judge is racing in all of this. And if a jury is not seated and sworn in by that time, that means the case, uh, the, the charges against Chesbro and Powell go away. They essentially win. And so that's the the gamble that you take by filing for a speedy trial. You're you're hoping you can catch people off guard and maybe you can't get it all ready to go and your charges can get dismissed. Okay. So we know from the very start, um, and, and Greg kind of alluded to it by comparing this to the YSL trial, a vast conspiracy trial, which is trying to put together in Fannie Willis's case from the start, Donald Trump and 18 other uh, defendants and bring them together as part of a criminal conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election. Well, we're going to kind of see that tested right away when this trial gets underway, correct? Because Chesboro and Sidney Powell really were engaged, I think I'm right in saying, in relatively different aspects of the effort to overturn the election. So this is going to be a test of how that conspiracy theory plays out. You're totally right, Bill. And obviously, this has been pitched as one giant conspiracy under Georgia's racketeering law. But when you actually look at what the individual overt acts, it really falls into four or five different buckets. You're talking about the harassment of Fulton County uh, poll worker Ruby Freeman. You're talking about the appointment of Trump electors, the breach of elections data in Coffee County, misinformation surrounding Georgia's vote. Um, and so Sidney Powell is really heavily involved, allegedly, in the Coffee County stuff. You have Ken Chesbro, who is mostly involved in the elector, um, you know, alleged scheme. And so mm -hmm. that was something that came up as these uh, defense attorneys have been talking. Why should these two be tried together? They're involved in such dis different aspects of the scheme. And when you listen to what the DA's office has been saying, no matter how many defendants are tried together, they say whether it's one or two or six or 18, they argue that they're still going to present the same case because they're trying to prove the entire large conspiracy. I don't know if that's truly going to be the case because we're only talking about two people. You don't want to show Trump's lawyers your entire hand if you're the DA's office, but that certainly is going to be something to keep in mind as, as arguments get underway here. How much are they going to incorporate all these other elements that don't directly involve Powell and Chesbro? We're here with the AJC's Tamar Hallerman, AJC Donald Trump trial reporter extraordinaire, and also one of the co-hosts of the award-winning Breakdown podcast, which you should download right now and listen to it anywhere you get your podcast. Tamar, so just to build on what you just said, should we be seeing these arguments that will be coming in the next couple of weeks? Should we be seeing this as a preview of Fonnie Willis's case against Donald Trump next year? Absolutely. And it really is going to be the first time that we we're going to see a lot of the evidence that the DA's office has been compiling over the last two and a half years. Like I said, I don't know if she'll be presenting all of it um, because the, she did argue the DA and there there is a built in advantage for the folks who go later on in these trials because you are able to see what the DA's office is presenting. You're, you're able to see which witnesses are compelling, where there are holes in people's stories, um, you know, where stories change over time. And so we do expect maybe they'll hold some things back, but it is a great preview of, of what may be to come.
Tamar, you've basically lived not just in courtrooms, but also in all the legal filings. I'm on to give our listeners a peek behind the scenes. We have a Slack channel uh, that is uh, for the Trump grand jury trial and, and for everything Trump related that is nonstop. And it's so awesome watching kind of the interactions. And, you know, you've, you've gotten to know all the legal ins and outs. And there was a post the other day about in limine, I think I'm pronouncing it right, but all these legal terms that, that many lawyers uh, sometimes struggle with. You're an expert on now after getting a crash course and everything uh, Donald Trump related. Um, but, you know, I want to go back to one of the really key motions and key arguments just a few weeks ago. How much of a game changer is it the fact that uh, this trial will be held in Fulton County and not in federal court. The, the, the efforts to remove um, the different portions of the case have so far failed. One of the biggest surprises so far was that Donald Trump's attorneys opted not to try and remove this to federal court, which really goes against the conventional wisdom and basically every source I'd talked to this entire time. Donald Trump is notorious for doing everything he can to try and delay or muddle legal proceedings. And this was seen as you know, a lever he could pull. So so why not try as the former president of the United States? So we were very surprised when we saw that Steve Sadow and Jennifer Little, Trump's two Atlanta attorneys, announced, nope, never mind, we're not going to do that. And that came after his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, failed in his bid to try and move things to federal court. He's appealed that ruling. Oral arguments will begin in the 11th Circuit uh, Court of Appeals in December. And there are four others who are also trying the same. But that's a very notable development, as you noted, Greg. First of all, there's going to be cameras in the courtroom, which is a very different dynamic from what would happen in federal court, which is very old school, no recording devices or computers or cell phones if you're a member of the public or the press. It also means a more progressive jury pool. Fulton County uh, voted for Joe Biden with something like 72% of the vote back in 2020. So not exactly a friendly crowd for Donald Trump. At the same time, you needed a unanimous jury in order to convict someone. So it still is very possible you get one or two holdouts, even if you can't move it to federal court, where you'd have a slightly more conservative jury pool. So, Tamar, despite the fact that uh, federal district court judge uh, Steve Jones had denied every request that's come before him of any of, from all of these defendants to move their trials to federal court, there is still pending activity. You've already kind of referred to it. Um, David Schaefer uh, Senator Sean Still, one of the so-called fake electors, Kathy Latham, who was uh, down there in Coffee County helping them open up the uh, uh, machines to access sensitive data. Um, and I think uh, 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 Jeffrey Clark, too, are now appealing the ruling and want to try to move the trial to federal, their trials to federal court. But I thought one of the aspects of that was that was particularly interesting was that Jeffrey Clark uh, last week asked that the proceedings against him in Fulton County Court be paused while his appeal plays out in the court system. It's the kind of delaying tactic that we think of when we think about Donald Trump and how he handles court cases. Yeah, and that certainly is going to be a dynamic to watch because proceedings against him in Fulton County will continue until basically they're told by federal judges to to stop. So that's certainly a dynamic to watch. I'll also be curious to see now that we have oral arguments in Mark Meadows' appeal scheduled that that happened on Monday um, afternoon, that the announcement that this will happen on December 15th. Are these judges in the 11th Circuit likely to want to add Jeff Clark and all these electors' um, appeals to that? 
Um, will they all be considered together in a group? Maybe not at all. Um, a lot of the legal, legal experts I spoke to believe that Mark Meadows had the best argument to make out of everyone. Um, so do they only give that opportunity to appeal to Mark Meadows? It's possible and certainly something we'll watch. So tomorrow, the question I get all the time, uh, the wild card, and I know you get it even more than I do. What role could Scott Hall, the, the bail bondsman who, uh, who pleaded guilty to sort of lesser charges and agreed to cooperate with prosecutors, what role could he play in this upcoming trial? Because I know he could have a role in a lot of different cases, but what, what role immediately could he play? Well, Scott Hall could testify against Sidney Powell. He was involved in the Coffee County um, episode uh, pretty heavily. And so that was immediately what my head went to when mm-hmm. I saw that that he was the first plea deal in all of this is, oh, they're getting the prosecution now has a very key witness who can um, testify against Sidney Powell. And, and if you're Sidney Powell's attorneys, I'd be very worried. Um, one of the things that happens when somebody agrees to a plea deal is that almost immediately they go and basically shoot a video with the DA's office where they get their story on tape. Um, so that kind of, first of all, locks these folks into a story and prosecutors have it in cl- you know, just in case or for them to use down the road. So that video is something to, to keep an eye out for. Maybe that's something that could be played down the line. Um, he also agreed to cooperate in any future legal proceedings wherever he's needed. So we could see him not only come out and speak against Sidney Powell, but all the other folks who were involved in the Coffee County matter, including folks like Misty Hampton. Um, so that's certainly something to keep in mind. And that's one of the other big dynamics I'm watching in the days and weeks ahead is do we see any other plea deals being struck? Um, something I reported in the last couple of weeks is that prosecutors have been floating similar plea agreements to many of the other lower level defendants in all of this. And obviously it would be a big coup to get people to flip, especially ahead of this big trial between Chesbro and Powell. So tomorrow we assume that uh, once a jury is seated, and by the way, I, I imagine the way we've watched Judge McAfee handle uh, motions, uh, uh, pretrial motions, he's been very efficient and he really believes in moving things forward. So he'll probably be a pretty powerful player in making sure that the jury does get seated before that deadline, right? Oh, yeah. He's made his intent clear. November 3rd is the drop dead deadline, and he plans to move rapidly through all of this. 450 people are coming to fill out their questionnaires this Friday. Another 450 people are coming the week after that. So he expects to churn through this, and it comes in a really stark contrast to the other major racketeering case moving forward in Fulton County Court, the YSL case. Um, So he's certainly one to watch, and I think he's mindful Um, Judge McAfee, of keeping proceedings under control. What a big assignment this could be. Um, You know, he's new to the bench. He's only 34 years old. And he said he does not want to be Judge Ito, Judge Lance Ito from the the O.J. Simpson case. And he mentioned, you know, he, he doesn't want to lose control of the proceedings. He doesn't want it to be, you know, lampoon this kind of big celebrity you know, circus of a trial. And so I think he's out there to prove that he can keep things under control and so far has has done a pretty good job of all of that. All right. So we figure the trial will take place into November, um, but we know nothing still about the timing of the larger trial, the Donald Trump trial, because that has to be coordinated with the other jurisdictions in which Trump has been indicted and will stand trial, right? 
Yeah, we don't know too much yet. Here's what I do know is that this trial trial involving Chesbro and Powell is slated to last about five months. Um, Judge McAthee said he, he hopes it might be a little shorter, but that's what he's going to be instructing jurors. And I'm not really expecting him to want to be- begin another trial with all of these other 16 remaining defendants during that. So I'm assuming, you know, that's going to take us into next spring. Uh, there are some some pre-trial deadlines that are going to be happening into the winter. I believe discovery has to be handed over to all the rest of the folks maybe in December or January. I'm getting my dates messed up, but you're absolutely right, Bill. There is going to be a question of when you can get Donald Trump into a courtroom, and especially if it's going to take five months to do this case, how long is it going to take Donald Trump and potentially upwards of a dozen other defendants? We're, of course, expecting prosecutors are going to try and cut deals with folks to whittle down this field, but it becomes more and more complicated with each set of defense counsels you're going to bring in to all of that. And of course, you have these bigger cases uh, that are going on in federal court as well with Jack Smith, the January 6th case, the classified documents case, the Stormy Daniels hush money case in New York. So it's going to be a big scheduling quagmire. And then, of course, you have all the campaign events on the presidential trail. It's going to be an absolute nightmare in terms of scheduling. And I do think it's possible we could see something start in Fulton County, either way later in 2024 or even possibly into 2025. We'll have to wait and see. Wow. So it seems like Fannie Willis's proposed scheduling date of March of next year is a little aggressive. Tomorrow, we have to take a break in a second, but I do want to ask you about the security concerns because this will be a very scrutinized phase of the trial. Um, I was at the Atlanta Pride Parade over the weekend and Fannie Willis was among the parade parade participants and she was flanked by guards armed to the teeth um, which is just a, a, a reminder of the threats that she's been facing, that others involved in this trial could be facing. You know, she's spoken publicly about the threats leveled against her. There's a lot of security precautions being taken on behind the scenes. But what do you know about what security uh, measures will be taken? Well, certainly a lot is being planned at this point, especially given what happened to the grand jurors who returned the indictment against Donald Trump. Their names were presented on the document, which is customary under Georgia law, but immediately those folks had their private information doxxed on the internet and they were getting death threats. Um, The police had to get involved in, in protecting these folks. And so Judge McAfee is very aware of all of that, especially as he gets ready to seat the jury for this trial. Um, He already issued an order limiting what reporters can publish about prospective jurors. We're not allowed to use any identifying information. We can't take pictures of them, mention their names or anything like that. Um, And there's even a question with cameras in the courtroom, um, what is going to be allowed? Where, Which angles are they allowed to even shoot at? Um, you know, it's possible we don't even see jurors um, in the shot. Maybe it's only trained on the defense attorneys um, or the DA's office or the judge. That's something that still is going to have to be worked out in the weeks ahead. Um, and you're so right. It is going to be a giant security event. The DA has had so many, you know, hundreds of threats that have come to her personally, including members of her family, her daughters. Um, It's been really ugly for her. I know that she has taken a lot of measures with her staff too, to also make sure that they're okay. She has, she gave them little keychains with panic buttons on Mm -hmm. them. She gave some of them bulletproof vests, but I'm expecting security to be pretty ramped up in the weeks ahead. 
um, especially as we get to trial. I know protests are something they're always on the lookout for. Mm-hmm. And you just saw the the strict security that was in that went into place ahead of the indictment, ahead of the um, surrenders at the jail. I'm expecting to see something not unlike that as this trial begins, and especially further down the line as we get to some of these higher profile defendants. Well, tomorrow we'll be on the case. Tomorrow, I hope you join us for the next segment. When we come back, we're going to be talking more drama on the Capitol Hill as Jim Jordan pushes his GOP colleagues to a floor vote he's hoping will make him Speaker of the House. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox right now, this very moment. If you're a subscriber to the AJC, you can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. What a deal. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. I'm Greg Lustin, along with Bill Nygut and senior reporter Tamar Hallerman host of the award-winning Breakdown Podcast. And Tia Mitchell joins us live from a very busy Capitol Hill. Tia, you've been in the center of all the legislative intrigue in Washington. What's the latest on the search for a new speaker? Does Jim Jordan have the votes right now? So the latest as we record is that around noon on, what is today, Wednesday, I'm so getting my days and Tuesday. Tuesday. So around noon, the House is going to take, well, it's going to nominate speakers. So we do expect Republicans to nominate Jim Jordan. Of course, Democrats will nominate Hakeem Hakeem Jeffries. Um, And there's a chance that maybe some of the Republicans who don't support Jim Jordan might try to nominate someone else. But at some point, we do expect there to be a roll call vote, maybe around 1 p.m. So by the time a lot of people hear this, It might be over already. Um, Jim Jordan, there are a few holdouts right now as far as what we know publicly. He doesn't have 217 House Republicans, which would help him get the majority, but he's pretty close. And so and he's changing minds. You know, every hour we hear about a holdout who's decided to support Jim Jordan. So it will be close. Um, it may take a round or two of this roll call voting, but it looks like he's he feels confident, at least, that he'll be able to get to 217 today. And Tia, as you reported in the Morning Jolt newsletter this morning, this is astonishing. This would be the 17th roll call vote on a House speaker this year alone. Right, because we went 15 rounds with Kevin McCarthy in January, and then the 16th was the 
the vote to take Kevin McCarthy out of office. That was October 3rd. And now we're going to have round 17, possibly 18 or 19 today. And remember, what makes this extraordinary is this is a roll call vote. The House clerk has to call every member by name. Right now, there are 433. If everyone is present, well, even those who aren't present, she still has to call their Mm -hmm. name. And so um, it takes a while to get through 433 names. And then if nobody can get to 217 then they got to possibly do it all over again. Tia, let's talk a little bit about the Georgia members uh, of the Republican conference. Um, We know that Austin Scott, who made this uh, lightning bid out of nowhere to challenge Jordan, initially had said that he would never vote for Jim Jordan for Speaker of the House. But after losing the uh, vote in the conference when Jordan became the Republican nominee, Scott said, well, I am going to support him. We know Barry Loudermilk has said he will support him. How is the rest of the delegation lining up? Right now, the entire Georgia GOP delegation says they are ready to support Jim Jordan. The last person who we weren't sure about was Representative Rick Allen. Not that we, not that I expected him to be a maverick, but he just hadn't gone on the record yet. But he did on Monday, and he said, you know, he hadn't supported Jim Jordan. He supported McCarthy, then he supported Scalise. Then on Friday, Rick Allen supported Austin Scott. But he said once Jim Jordan got the majority vote on Friday, he said he immediately went up to the Ohio Republican and said, you have my vote. I want to help you become speaker. And here's what Rick Allen told Tia Mitchell when she when she asked him about that flip. Jim won the majority last Friday, and I walked up to him and said, you have my full support, and I'll do whatever I need to do to help you get elected. Tamar Hallerman, I want to bring you into the conversation uh, because you were the previous Washington correspondent before before Tia took over that vaunted gig uh, uh, three or four years ago now. Uh Tamar, you know, how surprised were you? We just heard from Rick Allen, who was one of the Georgia lawmakers, one of the 81 or so uh, Republicans who voted for Austin Scott, the Tifton Republican. But how surprised were you on Friday to hear that Austin Scott launched this, what what Bill Nygut just called this lightning surprise (laughs) bid for the House Speaker's gavel? Well, it certainly raised my eyebrows. It was was surprising because Austin Scott is typically— one of the more low-key members, but at the same time as somebody who got to know him pretty well in my years on the gig, it also wasn't surprising. You know, he likes to kind of keep his head down, focus on his committees. He's he's really active on the defense and agriculture committees, which makes sense given his district in South Central Georgia. On the other hand, he kind of sees himself as, as one of the adults in Congress and in the Georgia delegation. And he has this maverick streak in him where I, I can see that he gets really frustrated with the state of things in Congress. So I could see him also snapping and saying, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm going to put myself forward in all of this. So it was amazing to see just how quickly this came about. He was able to have a, a relatively strong showing for a guy who you know, didn't tell anybody about it in advance. <laughs> the bid only lasted a couple hours. He didn't really campaign much, but it was a, a pretty amazing um, moment. And, you know, we uh, Tia was talking and I actually went to my bookshelf behind me and grabbed John Boehner's book oh, on yeah. the House. And when I first started co- uh, covering Congress about more than 10 years ago, um, John Boehner was the, the Republican leader and went on to become speaker. And 
you know, Jim Jordan was such a thorn in his side. John Boehner called him a political terrorist. <laughs> and to go from, from this guy who was seen as such a troublemaker who wanted to blow everything up, the leaders of his own party loathed him. And now this man is, in, is on the precipice of potentially becoming speaker himself. It says a lot about where the, the center of gravity in the Republican Party has shifted over the last 10 years. So, Tia, I... As we watch this play out and the possibility that Jordan does become speaker, I could see Democrats, you, you, you'll tell say it better than I will, could go one of two ways on this. Um, we know that Hakeem Jeffries over the weekend talked about the possibility that it's maybe Democrats could join with Republicans to elect a more moderate speaker than a Jim Jordan I don't know that there's any momentum moving forward for that right now, especially if Jordan seems to be locking up enough votes to become speaker. But on the other hand, I could imagine from a partisan political point of view, Democrats sitting back and saying, this really bodes well for us in the 2024 cycle if Jim Jordan actually does become speaker of the House. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. At the end of the day, this is not Democrats' problem. So they're willing to kind of like sit back and let Republicans fight amongst themselves, let them embarrass each other, um, let them kind of what people have called the clown show, have it on all the cable networks. That being said, Jeffries has also said from the beginning, if Republicans want to work with us and come up with a governing coalition so they so that they don't empower some of the more uh, hardliner, extreme right of their conference. He's like, I'm open. I'm here. Now, um, what hasn't happened yet is Republicans haven't been interested in dealing with re- Democrats, you know, because you wouldn't expect Democrats to do it for nothing. Just like you wouldn't expect any Republican. Let's say, you know, Speaker McCarthy, people said, well, why? Would Democrats allow Speaker McCarthy to be removed and now it's going to be someone more extreme? Would you have expected Republicans to vote for Nancy Pelosi to prevent AOC from Mm -hmm. becoming Speaker? Like, that's not how things work. So if Republicans want Democrats to help them keep Kevin McCarthy in office, then somebody needed to say, hey, Democrats, let's work together. And that hasn't happened. And so that empowers the Democrats to say, well, we're going to do what we've always done, which is vote for Hot King Jeffries to be speaker. And you all figure out what you do with your majority. They're kind of saying it's not our mess. It's yours to clean up. Tamar, I want to get back to something you just mentioned when you picked up John Boehner's book about how Jim Jordan was the thorn in the side for, for Boehner and other House leaders, because now it seems like there's a chance the tables could be turned, whether mainstream Republicans or even or even ultra-conservative Republicans with such a thin majority, with just a handful of votes, four or so votes, depending on the attendance of that day, uh, could foul things up, even if he gets the Speaker's gavel, uh, could complicate his issues. So now... You know, Jim Jordan might be walking into this 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 job, uh, standing on this precipice, navigating this tightrope act every single day, just like just like Boehner did for a little bit, but just like Kevin McCarthy did for the first nine or so months of the year. It's an impossible job, especially given um, how divided the Republican conference is and given how narrow the majority is. When you only have four votes to spare, that makes it awfully hard. 
you know, you basically, the, the way the House runs is that it's it's so highly partisan. You can't count on Democrats to be able to really help you with anything. And if you can't keep your own conference together, if your conference is so divided between your moderates and your hard right Republicans and the, the Freedom Caucus, what can you get folks to agree on? I just think it's an impossible job right now. And we should expect the bare minimum out of the House until the next election, because this this majority is just so darn narrow. I think even doing the absolute basics that Congress is going to have to do, like funding the government, um, is going to be almost impossible. Um, you know, we might be doing continuing resolutions and shutdown showdowns every couple of months I just don't know how they're going to be able to do much more than that. Well, uh, Greg, I know you want to get to a break. Quickly, I'd like to say I renew my observation of last week, which was why does anybody want the job? I know there's a lot of potential power and there's a wonderful suite of offices that comes with it. But here's what's interesting about this. You, you, This notion that the tables could be turned. I believe Jordan has said that as Speaker, he would be willing to work toward an arrangement that would allow funding to move forward for both Ukraine and Israel. Israel. Well, there are some of his far-right members who may back him for speaker don't want to fund Ukraine at all. It could put him in exactly the position McCarthy was in. He's also said he's willing to work out a deal on spending. So he could be uh, suddenly faced with his former pals being uh, suspicious of him as he moves forward. Yeah, when you think of House members like Marjorie Taylor Greene, that resistance to Ukraine funding is a pillar of their reasoning to vote in the first place against Kevin, uh, sorry, against uh, against any rivals to Jim Jordan. Uh, so we got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about why Herschel Walker is still holding on to a mountain of campaign cash so long after losing his Senate race last year to Senator Raphael Warnock. Is he thinking about running for office again? This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. As you've heard, our colleagues at the AJC are working around the clock to keep you informed on all the developments in the Fulton County case against Donald Trump. And now the AJC is putting all of our coverage into one place with the Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox with fresh reporting from reporters like Tamar Hallerman, who you've heard today. Sign up for free at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Well, Herschel Walker still has about $4.5 million in cash in his campaign account. That's a formidable sum. Bill, by comparison, that's almost as much money as Ron DeSantis just reported in cash for his presidential run. <laughs> that's a really interesting comparison. So, yeah, um, Herschel Walker, after losing that race months and months ago, um, does have this mountain of cash sitting there. Now, 
A couple of things we should note about this. Number one, it's perfectly legal for a candidate to hold on to campaign contributions and distribute them in limited ways. They can give to other uh, uh, campaign candidates or political organizations. They can give money to charities. Herschel Walker, we think, has given a million or so dollars of of that money or or more than the 6.5 to uh, charities. But but I think the question becomes, as he holds on to this money, is he looking at using it to mount yet another bid for office in Georgia? Uh, Tia, you know, he has, he spent more than a million, he gave more than a million dollars to the Georgia Republican Party. He's given money to charities, which again, is perfectly legal under the law, but he's kept a significant amount of that cash. $4.5 million is, is nothing to sneeze at. And it's not only the fact that he has so much money, but he has so much money, but he also remains relatively quiet publicly. You know, he's not super active in politics, particularly in Georgia, but anywhere. So it's like, what are you planning to do while you're kind of you've gone back underground, but you're keeping this heap of cash? But I do want to point out kind of on a related note that um, there's another Georgia politician who's sitting on a lot of cash, and that is late Congressman John Lewis. And you'll read this in I'm going to give you guys a preview of something that'll be in Wednesday's jolt. But the FEC actually asked John Lewis's campaign like the guy's clearly not going to be able to run for office again. We know he passed away in 2020. Why are you guys sitting on so much cash? And it's a a little under two hundred thousand dollars. So not the millions we're talking about with Herschel Walker. But again, for a candidate who's been gone for three years, the FEC wanted some answers. And we'll have it in jolt tomorrow what the campaign said in response. Interesting. I love the tease. And look, Tia, you're right. I mean, there are long dormant campaigns that have held on to their cash. David Perdue is another candidate we were closely watching. We've been closely watching his campaign filings. Um, and, there, and there are legal ways to transfer that money to other political groups and, 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 uh, and to related PACs and things like that. Um, but Herschel Walker is such an interesting figure because he, lo- he was the only Republican statewide candidate to lose in Georgia in last year's election cycle. Um, we don't know much about his future. He's been mostly off social media. He hasn't made too many public statements. We do know that they put his he put his house in Buckhead on the block. So we don't know where he's moving to. They won't comment. They won't tell me. We also know he enrolled in UGA classes this summer, Bill. Um, hmm. So look, I mean, I've talked to a lot of Republicans who are keeping one eye in 2026 and some who are not exactly fans of Herschel Walker are very worried. Yeah, yeah. What exactly is he going to do? I I think we shouldn't uh, miss an opportunity to remind listeners of something that you all had reported in the Jolt and in longer stories uh, over the months. And that's it. Herschel Walker, uh, we know now, had to spend $65,000 on attorneys because of a lawsuit he was engaged in. And, And that was because at one point, when he was soliciting contributions for his campaign, he went to a Montana billionaire, Dennis Washington. He asked him for a $600,000 campaign contribution, but but Walker told him to send most of that money, $535,000, to a company that he 
ran or still runs called H.R. Talent. And there, he's gotten Washington has said, I want, wanted that money back and he got it. But there were quest, serious questions raised about that. Yeah, Tia, we don't know if all those legal fees are associated with that because they won't comment. In fact, uh, we haven't heard from Herschel Walker directly on that cash transfer at all. But as you've reported in the past, that's already triggered ethics complaints. Right. And that's something, you know, ethics complaints, FEC complaints rarely amount to anything. And when they do amount to something, it's usually nothing more than what is perceived as a slap on the wrist. But they take forever. So um, in the meantime, though, we've seen, like you all have noted, signs that, you know, they say the money's been paid back. And again, signs that the campaign has engaged in some attorneys that could be related to their correspondence, both with the FEC and possibly with Senate ethics um, officials or other ethics organizations regarding this. So we'll just have to stay tuned, see if anything comes from it. You know, Bill, something else fascinating that's happening deep in these really arcane campaign disclosures is I noticed tens of thousands of dollars of refunds to donors of Herschel Walker. And I called a few of them up and they said, basically, hey, we heard the campaign was giving back money to donors <laughs> who were upset that he was holding on to it or who just wanted their cash back. And so I've interviewed three or four who just said they contacted the campaign. They wanted their money back since he is still sitting on this small fortune <laughs> this, or, or large fortune of cash and they're getting their money back. <laughs> hey, you had an item in the Joel today that I'd love to uh, uh, mention briefly. I know we're cl- short on time. Um, we know now that a big national story uh, overnight was that the uh, uh, judge in uh, Trump's first federal uh, trial um, has imposed a very narrow and limited gag order on him after uh, prosecutors asked for that. Jack Smith asked for it. Uh, you know, he was attacking everyone associated with the trial from the judge to the staff uh, in the courtroom, obviously potential witnesses. And, and, and the judge finally issued this very narrow ruling, which essentially said, you, if you want to keep attacking me, that's your right. You can keep talking about the Justice Department and believing it's corrupt in your campaign speeches if you want to. Um, but here are a couple of very narrow rules. You can't you can't attack witnesses, potential witnesses and the like. And yet the reason I bring it up on our show here in Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene was in the courtroom yesterday and uh, wanted to be there. Trump was not there. And when the when the decision came down, when when the judge issued her ruling, Marjorie Taylor Greene was quoted as saying, this is meant to hurt Trump politically. It's meant to sway public opinion. Public opinion is what guides people how to vote. So obviously everyone will see this for exactly what it is, weaponized government. And and the reason I think it's worth mentioning is we already know that the Trump, that Trump and his allies have done their best to undermine the integrity of elections. And now this is just another example about how some of those associated with Trump and Trump himself are are also now attacking the judicial system in the country. It's just this ongoing effort to run down institutions that um, they believe somehow are not acting as if they should in their favor. Yeah, Bill, and we've certainly seen Donald Trump 
and his allies uh, talk about this over in the weaponized Justice Department, weaponized judiciary. Um, I've said on the show a few times about the blurred lines between the legal case and the Donald Trump campaign. And Patricia's cor- corrected me, at least in her view, and said there is no line uh, because the legal case, in her view, is the campaign. And, and there's many who agree with Patricia on that one. And to me, Marjorie Taylor Greene showing up, and I think, Tia, you can speak on this too, is a reminder too of how Marjorie Taylor Greene is playing this outsized role as one of Donald Trump's chief defenders, not just here in Georgia, but around the nation. Yeah, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene being there as like a surrogate for Trump is further evidence that these cases are such a big part of Trump's pitch to Republican primary voters. You know, there's polling that shows the cases, the indictments have improved Donald Trump's standing among Republican voters. He's really taken advantage of the outrage he's been able to build up um, among his supporters related to these charges. And so Everything that Marjorie Taylor Greene said was a reflection of that approach to these cases and applying them to his campaign. Um, I think it's also we can't ignore that the relationship between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Donald Trump goes both ways. She benefits greatly by remaining aligned and in the favor of Donald Trump. It has helped insulate her from some concerns that she was losing her far right credibility. Mm -hmm. But as long as she is on the plane with Trump, traveling with Trump, speaking on Trump's behalf, having Trump pick up her phone calls at town hall meetings, she's insulated from any concerns. Well, she's insulated to a degree Mm -hmm. from those concerns that she's not America first enough, because how can you accuse her of not being America first when she's right there with Donald Trump? Exactly. And we'll be following everything that happens in the potential race for a running mate for Donald Trump coming up if he does end up winning the nomination. Well, that is all the time we have for today's show. If you have a question you'd like to ask us here on Politically Georgia, you can now call the Politically Georgia call-in hotline anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the show. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Producer Shaney B. and his legion of interns are standing by. We cannot wait to hear from you. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. We're now releasing new episodes every weekday. So look for new additions to hit your podcast app sometime around 1 p.m. each day. All this leads up to the very exciting October 30th debut of our new Politically Georgia radio show, which will air Monday through Friday mornings at 10 a.m. on WABE. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash 
unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.